This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that we can be together. These are challenging days for the body of Christ, but these are days of opportunity for us to be witnesses to Christ, to people who maybe have never been open before to your dialoguing with them about spiritual things. This is a choice opportunity. Very often as church history demonstrates that God uses times of great difficulty to bring people to himself. And so we don't want to be so consumed with worry and fear and things that should typify the pagans, the Gentiles, and not the believer. We want to be seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and to use these days of opportunity. Now, let me say, if you're joining us for the first time, the Bible line is a call-in talk show ministry of sorts where if you have a question that Uh, you um, want an answer to as you've been studying God's Word or maybe some particular challenge in your life or family that you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can be of help, all you do need to do, again, is pick up the phone locally. It's 843-525-1859, or you can text us, email us here, so to speak, directly here into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. WAGP.net is our website, and this station is live streamed around the world, around the country, 24-7 by God's grace. And it's a great tool uh, to friends in other parts of the country, especially where so many, many Christian radio stations don't even have teaching any longer, yet that's what people need. That's what God blesses. Music is important, but it's secondary in terms of conversion and in terms of sanctification. It's an important aspect, but it's a secondary aspect. So with that said, let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet. By God's grace, we'll help people this morning. Rick, where are we at? All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Carl. This is uh, Daryl from Richmond Hill. Hey, Daryl. Nice to hear your voice. You doing okay down there, brother? Yes, sir. I'm doing good. We're healthy. <laughs> Haven't spoken to you in a long time. What's on your mind? Uh, I was thinking about the um, conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, and when he explains, you know, the born-again uh, portion, you know, you, there, there requires a birth from above, uh, a life that God gives from above, a spiritual yes. birth. Mm. He said something to Nicodemus that, you know, I've been thinking about. When he said, are you not the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things, what from the Tanakh would... Nicodemus, uh, you know, where should he have understood? And I know not the same terminology, but where from the not from the Tanakh should he have understood that there is a spiritual birth from above? 
Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And uh, let me just say, as you brought out, I know some translations say, are you a teacher of Israel? But it actually is articular. Are you the teacher of Israel? So he was a teacher's teacher. He was like a leading rabbinical uh, leader of the day. And he is coming. He doesn't say, you know, I come, but we we want to know these things. So he's coming as a representative, as a leader amongst them. But no, uh, Jesus is appealing actually twice over in the text, uh, because if you look at, uh, he, he asks the question in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, and look at the next pronoun, we, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. So Jesus, of course, fulfilled three offices when he was here on earth, prophet, priest, and king. And so he came as a prophet of God. Of course, he's more than a prophet. He's God in human flesh, but he still fulfills three offices, off, uh, prophet, priest, and king. And as prophet, he identifies himself with that plural pronoun. We know, we testify, we're in the Old Testament. And so he should have known passages like Jeremiah 31. So let me just turn there for just a moment in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, meaning all of Israel. Though the kingdom had been divided, this was for all the Jewish people. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they had broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God remained faithful, though they were faithless very often in their history. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the new birth prophesied. And of course, this is the new covenant that Jesus spoke of at the Lord's Supper there in the upper room. And, uh, you know, he took that typical Passover meal uh, that every Jew celebrated once a year, but he being the ultimate Passover lamb that had been pictured and prophesied, uh, he puts an entirely different uh, spin, so to speak, on what would happen uh, because of uh, his death. And so while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Of what covenant? Of the new covenant that had been prophesied, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So again, he links, just like Jeremiah, the new covenant to the forgiveness of sin. When you look at all of the Old Testament saints who had some kind of a unique, special relationship with God the Holy Spirit out of the millions of Jewish people, who lived from Abraham, the first Jew, all the way through. And even Gentiles who were believers before God formed the church, whether it's uh, Noah or, uh, you know, Noah's sons or whoever, um, only about 500, and that's a generous number, less than 500 people 
had any kind of a unique, special relationship with the Holy Spirit. But even those people did not have the kind of relationship that was promised here in the New Covenant. Uh, that's why Jesus, of course, could say of John the Baptist, who had a unique relationship with the Spirit of God, even while he was in Elizabeth's womb. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Jesus said, the person who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. How is that possible? He said, no one born of a woman was ever greater than John, but the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John, because John died before the fulfillment of the new covenant. So it's not until in time and space and history that God provides forgiveness through the cross that he's able to indwell people with the Spirit. We're not regenerated before we believe. There is some false teaching in our day that says, well, you're regenerated before you believe. That's not true. Uh, Luther even said that you were born again in the waters of baptism. That's not true. Uh, He used uh, different terms, different reformers used different things. Certainly, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, there's a work of the Spirit that takes place prior to salvation. So no one, if no one seeks God, no, not one, no one can take any credit for salvation. It's a work of God from beginning to end, but neither does it smush the free will of man. Man still has to respond to the Spirit of God and how he works. So he should have also known Uh, passages like, say, um, turning here to Ezekiel chapter uh, 36. And by the way, uh, these passages are quoted in the New Testament, like in Hebrews chapter 10, is finding immediate fulfillment in the church today. We cannot conclude from that that God is done with Israel, as so many falsely, like Calvin and Luther and many today, like uh, Alistair Begg and John Piper, and these are all men you'll meet in heaven, but they falsely concluded that God was done with the Jew. He's not done with the Jew. In fact, after he states the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, a few verses later, he says this, um, when he says, um, they'll all know me from the least to the greatest because I'll forgive their iniquity. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, the sun, the moon, the stars that he just referenced, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that I, they have done, declares the Lord. God is saying this is a permanent relationship. He repeats it again in the prophet Ezekiel of the permanency of his relationship with the people of Israel. And so one of the questions that came in Sunday night from Meet the Pastor was in reference to Reformed theology, and there's a lot of good, godly men, like two I just mentioned, Alistair Begg and John Piper, but they have a distorted view of Israel. So for John Piper to say that Israel is no more significant than Uganda, that's a warped view of what God says. God is going to fulfill these promises. As long as the sun and the moon and the stars are up there, he's going to fulfill it. But because we're seeing a partial fulfillment in the church today does not eradicate the promise that God has for Israel. And, of course, uh, Nicodemus should have known this. And so, for instance, in the prophet Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a spirit within you, 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the new birth. This is being born again. Now, the term born uh, again, or you could render it born from above, it's the Greek has a dual nuance, and so some translations say born from above or born again, same deal. The fact is, is that uh, this was a promise that God made for the Jewish people. It's going to be fulfilled. There's a partial fulfillment in Israel today. So Paul speaks in Romans 11 of a partial hardening on Israel. But he reminds us that there's going to come a day when all Israel's, all of the people of Israel are going to have their eyes open, and there's going to be a huge revival amongst the Jewish people. So he should have understood what we, as prophets, testify. You're the teacher of Israel. This is what the scriptures spoke of. Uh, This is the new life where people can know God, not just in an intellectual way, but know him in a personal way. And that's how Jesus, of course, defines eternal life. He said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent, not knowing just that he exists. All men know that. Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as an atheist. But in terms of a vital, life-changing, heart of stone to a heart of flesh, born from above relationship. And Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, should have been in tune to that because this is what the prophets had foretold that Messiah would bring. He would bring a new covenant, a new deal. Great question, Daryl. Appreciate it so much. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next uh, listener would like to know if you have an opinion on what is recently happening with euthanasia of the elderly. Uh, This listener knows that you believe abortion is wrong because it's murdering the unborn, but if the elderly or their family say that they want to be euthanized, is this also wrong? And would this be considered taking human life into human hands and not leaving it up to God? Well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away Job will affirm. So let's just be clear. The Bible is crystal clear that euthanasia is murder. And so um, I know sometimes people today don't want to, quote unquote, suffer, and they don't want to go through heartache. But Scripture nowhere teaches for the believer or the unbeliever that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. In fact, very often God uses suffering, the Bible teaches, in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 4, uh, I have whole messages on this in my 1 Peter series. He uses suffering to make us more like Christ, to sanctify us, to shape us. Uh, trials that we endure are uh, designed to make us teleos, mature believers in Christ. And God often uses, too, suffering to bring people to faith. Sometimes he uses blessings. Um, Romans 2 speaks of the goodness of God that should have brought people to repentance. They see all his blessings, and they, well, they just ignored them. But sometimes God uses suffering. The bottom falls out, and the only way you can look is up. Sometimes it's through a virus like this, and this is why I say this is an opportunity for born-again believers in America who have a message, forget the Joel Olstein absolute trash and nonsense that he brought out on the air when he was interviewed last Sunday by Fox News. I mean, it was just sheer, utter, unadulterated nonsense and untruths that he was stating about how to deal with the virus. We should be pointing people to Jesus, to his death, burial, and resurrection. 
we should be reminding them that death is a product of the fall. Death is real. Now, whether you die through a virus or a car accident, we all have an appointment with death, and we need to be ready. And God often uses suffering to bring people to faith, to open up their eyes. Um, But biblically speaking, if you're a born-again believer and you're following the dictates of God's Word, you should do everything possible to preserve life. And I will say that there's a difference, though, between preserving life and prolonging life. Um, sometimes there are artificial means that where people are hooked up to a machine, there's no brain waves. Um, there's, you know, no activity. The person is dead while a machine is pumping the lungs and, uh, circulating the blood through the body in that it keeps the heart rolling. Uh, it's, uh, the person's gone to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You die just once. It's appointed for a man to die once. That's why there's no such thing as these outer body experiences that people claim they have. And they came back and, um, no, you die just once and you meet God. And, and sometimes it's very emotionally difficult. My heart goes out to people because I've been in these settings with a family member who, um, you know, the person's dead. There's zero brain waves. They are dead. They're already gone. There's just a shell. And, and it is brutal to unplug the machine. But there, there comes a time when, you know, when the person's gone. Now, I believe you should go all 18 rounds. You know, I, th- I think you should choose life. That's what God said in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. He said, choose life this day. God is a pro-life God in every respect, and in euthanasia really spurns the gift of life, and it embraces the curse, the very curse that Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 speak of. And, and I know it's a somewhat related issue, but, you know, we could also talk about with this question of, you know, a physician-assisted suicide. Uh, they, they like to put a nice, clean face on it. They call it death with dignity. No, it's, it's suicide. It's murder. And while you may give the patient all the tools to push the button, to inject the needle, to push the plunger, uh, that physician who's engaged in that is just as guilty as murder as anyone else. So Christians should be pro-life in every respect. And, you know, uh, it's kind of sad. I mean, what is happening in Italy, you know, there's such a shortage of ventilators there that... I guess it's been maybe 10 or 12 days ago, if you were over 80, you couldn't be on a ventilator, though you needed it. And so they said, we don't have a ventilator, and we can only keep one person alive with this machine, though I understand in New York they've done some creative uh, adapting to maybe let two people function off of a single ventilator. Uh, But if you're over 80 you didn't get a ventilator. And then last week they changed it. If you're over 60, you didn't get a ventilator. And the rationale was, you know, oh, you know, you're 25 or you're 40 and you haven't lived as long. And so we're going to give the ventilator to the younger person. That's not the kind of choice we're talking about. And I hope we don't come to those choices in America. And our president is working very hard. I mean, he's a businessman. He knows how to 
uh, get leaders from major corporations and companies and get them on board and to see the private sector intersect with our government, I think it's just fantastic. And we should be praying for him. But, you know, we certainly hope that we're not going to face those kinds of problems because, you know, initially they thought, well, you're a high risk if you're over 60 and uh, you maybe have some underlying problems, diabetes. And and now, like very often, as they've come out in the last few days, this virus has morphed in and uh, made some changes, and it's it's taking uh, a, a number of people between 25 and, and 50. And they even had a one-year-old precious little baby die a couple of days ago. So death is not a respecter of persons, and we need to be ready for it. Uh, but at the same time, we need to promote life. And we live in, to quote uh, George W. Bush, we, we, we live in a culture of death, and we need to promote life. All right, great question uh, that came in from uh, Daryl. No, that was, uh, I don't know where that came in. That was from. anonymous. Anonymous, yeah. all right. So, All right, Bill from Winchester, Virginia, says in First Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In my reading, this, is, uh, this verse states that Christ died for the sins of all mankind, which includes both the saved and unsaved. As I understand the scriptures, believers in Jesus become the saved because they are justified by the propitiation by the blood of Christ. However, not all believe in Jesus and are eternally separated from Christ and receive judgment of the lost at the great white throne judgment. All the time their sins have been forgiven, but the unpardonable sin is their unbelief, which seals their separation from God eternally. Others think this verse means that Christ died for all sins and not for the sins of all mankind. This line, uh, this line of exposition leads you down a very different path. Dr. Brogy, would you share your understanding on the biblical meaning of this verse? Well, you're raising a question between what is sometimes called a limited atonement and a particular atonement, uh, as those terms are used to say that Jesus didn't die for everyone, that he died only for the elect, and their argument is, is that the blood of Christ was wasted. So you had popular guys like R.C. Sproul who, who taught that. Uh, he was what we call a five-point Calvinist. There's four-point, three-point, you know, we can... Uh, get into the nitty-gritty of it, but I believe with all my heart that Christ died for all men. When it says that Christ died the just for the unjust, who's the unjust? Anyone, anyone, anyone who has ever sinned, and that's, that's all of us. We are all unjust by nature. I believe I can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. I don't have to nuance my words and say, well, Christ died for those who would repent and believe. I don't believe that for one skinny second. I believe Christ died for everyone and that he made a payment for the sins of the world. And that same payment that will save some people will condemn others, such that the scripture can say, he that believes in the Son has life, he who does not believe the wrath of God abides upon him. So Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So whose sins did he die for? The just for the unjust. And who are the unjust in Scripture? Well, my Bible tells me everyone who's been born from Adam. God will say in Genesis, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Paul in Romans 3, quoting the psalm, says there is none righteous, Isaiah as well, not even one. It'll say a little bit later in that chapter, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you've sinned, if you're a sinner, then you're a member of the unjust, and Christ died for you. Uh, Christ shed his blood for every person who has ever lived or whoever will live. And so his death is sufficient to save anyone. Uh, He did it in order that he might bring us to God. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The word bring is the Greek word prosago, and it has the idea of bringing a person into the presence of a king or a a high-level person. And Jesus can bring you into the throne room of God the Father, who's infinitely holy on the basis of his work. So, again, people use the same words. They define the meanings differently. I I have one definition of foreknowledge that I think is more biblically based than the five-point Calvinist, who has a different definition of prosago. Uh, In either case... Uh, you know, to come to this conclusion that Jesus didn't die for everyone, you have to be educated into that position. It's not the simple reading of Scripture. And so when I go to different countries of the world sometimes to to teach or to share the gospel, and sometimes this question will come up, and these are questions sometimes that they had never even heard before. And these are people who'd never been to seminary because, say, under communism, you weren't allowed to go to seminary. But they just had to study the scriptures and pour over it and dialogue with one another. And when communism fell, they couldn't believe some of the positions that people had come up with that were coming into, you know, Russia and Ukraine and uh, Moldova and all these different former Soviet satellites, Georgia, and that people were regenerated before they believed, that Jesus didn't die for all, that he died just for the elect. That's sheer error. And it's sad because, you know, my Calvinistic friends can say that they are evangelistically passionate, but they are not. They're at the bottom of the pile in terms of sending missionaries to the world. And our church supports um, over 300 missionaries monthly. And I'm telling you, None of them are Calvinistic. Every once in a while, we get an application of a five-point Calvinist, but almost none of them that ever apply are Calvinistic in this sense. And again, the word Calvinism, it's a big term in terms of soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, every realm of theology. But again, it starts with the premise that God is done with Israel. That's the crux of it all. That's how they uh, read Romans 9, 10, and 11 through their rose-colored glasses. Look, I I told someone recently, I said, I think if I met John Calvin, I wouldn't like him. And I I wasn't joking. I just don't think he was a nice, warm fella. He he doesn't leave me with that impression as I read his commentaries. And that doesn't mean that he was a wicked man. I'm sure his intentions were good. And I'm sure his theology has been straightened out. And I'm sure some aspects of my theology will be straightened out when I get to heaven. But the simple reading of Scripture— is that this passage, 1 Peter 3.18, is not teaching a limited redemption, but that the death of Christ is sufficient to save anyone because he died for all, but it is only efficient 
for those who believe. And again, depending whose dictionary you're reading, they'll use the same term- terminology with different meanings. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. We just had a caller dictate this question. How should Christians deal with the recent stimulus package, the money that they'll be receiving from the federal government? And is there any distinction in receiving money from the state that were a benefit of people who may have played the lottery? Well, uh, there is a difference. Uh, the lottery is a, you know, a type of tax, really. And unfortunately, it preys off of many times people who can't even afford to buy a lottery ticket. And I've seen people drive into one gas station I've used on occasion and you know, they're in a beat-up old car. The kids just look like, you know, they're living on a shoestring. And the person goes in and buys 25 lottery tickets. You know, and that that's sad. That's, that's, uh, that's, the, uh, that's what this tax, lottery tax, does. And it's, it's a voluntary tax, but that's really what it is. With that said, no, this stimulus package is quite different. Do I think it's wise? No, I don't think it's wise at all. Uh, not what we're doing, uh, at least certain aspects of it. Number one, let's say you get a $1,200 check. That means I think your adjusted gross income has to be under $150,000 and you get a $1,200 check. I mean, that's going to be a help for a week or two, but that's a Band-Aid. That's not a real fix. So if you have four kids uh, and you're married – so now you're going to get immediately $500 for each child. That's two grand. And then if you have, uh, you're, you're married, you're going to get another $2,400. So there's $4,400 coming to a family that might be gainfully employed. Suppose you've got a job and you haven't lost your job yet. You know, so wisdom dictates maybe this was not the best use of money. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, she she demanded for this thing to be able to pass because it had to go through the House. That I forgot what it was, $36 million, I think, that had to go to the Kennedy Center. 25. Oh, 25. Uh, what's the difference? Here, a yeah, there. a million there. And so they got their $25 million, and the next day they laid off all the musicians. That didn't make sense. She wanted her pro-abortion stuff in there because she's a baby-killing, wicked woman. She has fallen wicked. She wants to promote death. I'm telling you, what she is doing is beyond evil, along with some governors in our nation of New York and Virginia who want to kill little babies even the day they're born. It's just, it's, it's incredible what is happening. But look, um, you know, Lindsey Graham, our own senator from this state, tried to stop certain aspects of the bill. For instance, if you were an hourly worker, and you were making $9 an hour, and your salary was $30,000 a year through this stimulus package, they're raising your hourly pay to $15 an hour, and now you're going to make $50,000 a year uh, if you if this were to spread out over 12 months in terms of the unemployment. If you were able to, you're, you're laid off and you're unemployed and you're able to get, I mean, that doesn't make sense. That just doesn't make good sense. And, of course, he's still fighting it and wants to put an amendment to the bill. You say, well, I'm waiting for my money. Well, you know, I'm going to get some too. And What am I going to do with it? Well, number one, I'm going to tithe. I always give a minimum of tithe of anything, and I'm going to spend it. You better believe it. Uh, Look, if we're going to hang, we might as well hang together, uh, as Ben Franklin said. But I'm telling you, we're going to hang. 
because we, we just have gone over $2 trillion in new debt, and that doesn't include, which they don't talk about much, another $4 trillion the federal government has borrowed. We've just borrowed in the last month $6 trillion. Look, it's a law of God. You cannot spend money that you do not have. And if you do, sooner or later, you're going to pay the piper. You couldn't do that in your home finances. Sooner or later, when you fill up every credit card and you've gone through every means that you can, you're going to pay the piper at some point. Well, this nation is going to pay the bill at some point. And so we're headed for a a financial disaster. Let's just say, and I hope by God's grace we get through, you know, Certainly, the end of the world's not going to come through this virus. So we're, we're going to get through. How do I know that? Because I've read the end of the story. Uh, the end of the story is clear. Unless you're, you know, you take a preterist view of Revelation or the historical view of Revelation. But if you take the plain reading of Revelation and the plain reading of the Olivet Discourse, there's still a whole bunch of future events that are going to transpire in human history. Uh, during the time of Daniel's 70th week, what's known as the Great Tribulation. And those events have yet to transpire, but they will transpire. And they don't even begin to compare to the kind of, uh, you know, death that a virus like this will bring. We're talking about something dramatically different. So we know this is not the quote-unquote end of the world, though it could be God's, like, last call to get people's attention before he begins to unfold the final events of human history. Could be. And it's like God might be giving some people one final wake-up call before the wake-up calls won't come because God's Spirit will not always strive with men. And there will come a time when, when people who've heard the gospel, they will have crossed the line like in John 12 where Jesus told the Jews of his day, though they had seen so many miracles and had been given so much revelation, he said that because you would not believe, he'll then go on to say you could not believe. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah that God judicially hardens their hearts and blinds their eyes. So you can't come to Christ whenever you want to because salvation is a work of God. He initiates with you. God comes in the garden. Where are you, Adam? That's not the voice of a detective. God knows everything. He's omniscient. Whenever you hear God's voice in Scripture asking a question, it's not to learn, but it's to reveal, and he's revealing to Adam and Eve that they are in sin and under the judgment of God and they need forgiveness. And God begins right with the first family to make a promise of a savior and that he removes their fig leaf religion, the work of their own hands and the first death in all the universe takes place where animals are killed skins. It's plural. God gives them skins to wear. So, Uh, They are clothed, and God is establishing a principle that sin brings death, and therefore without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, but it can't be anyone's blood as he'll given the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, 15 and following. It's the blood of the Messiah, the Savior, that he's going to unfold picture through type, and even in Genesis, even through Abraham and uh, Yitzhak up there on top of the mountains of Moriah, the very place where Jesus died, just one picture after another through prophecy, direct what God is going to do when a child would be born, a child's name who would be called Mighty God, a child who would become God's unique servant, who would be pierced through for our iniquity, but who would not undergo decay, who would be raised from the dead. 
So these are important issues in our day that we need to think about. Uh, We need to be prepared as God's people to share the gospel like never before during this time. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, our next listener has uh, emailed their question. They write, there is a friend of mine who does not believe in God, I mean at all, and thinks me crazy for believing in a Savior Creator. What would be the best way to show love and understanding through his ignorance and downright offensive comments about my faith? He is an atheist, from what I gather, and has a longing for better in his life, but cannot and will not see the love light of Christ. Well, um, I would say, first of all, just let's be clear. Many people who listen to me, there's some atheist in Maine who listens to me on occasion, and he'll write some mean comments. And uh, he said, yeah, I was listening to this preacher in Portland, and he says there's no such thing as an atheist. Well, I'm an atheist, and well, he's not an atheist. He can call himself an atheist with his lips, but in his heart he knows there's a God, and it's with his heart that the fool has said there's no God. But still he knows there's a God. That's why the Bible dedicates one half of one verse to proving the existence of God. Look, if you've got someone who is a downright so-called atheist, or maybe even an agnostic, and he says, well, I'm not saying there is or isn't, I just don't know. You can remind him and say, well, you know, the Bible does say you do know, because the Bible says that that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How did God make himself known to men? He tells us, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So Paul is saying, look, no one can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because the creation shouts the existence of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The psalmist will write, you know, the watch on my wrist, I don't believe it was shaken up in a bag for five billion years, and out came the ordered working timepiece. No, the design points to a designer. Paul's argument is that the creation points to the creator. Now, he's not trying to prove God to these people. He's just uh, reminding these believers whom he is writing at Rome how they are to view uh, various groups of people in the world. And he first deals with the hardcore pagan. And he says the hardcore pagan is without excuse. And then he'll say, for even though they knew God, how did they know God? In a saving way? No. Uh, they didn't know him in a personal way like John seventeen three speaks of. But they knew God in terms that he exists. Their problem was they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Uh, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark. And professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator, Paul's argument is. In the second chapter of Romans, he'll say, for when Gentiles, and the word Gentile, um, it's the word ethne, it's a word goyim in Hebrew, it is used in two ways in both Testaments, sometimes to refer to a non-Jew, or sometimes to refer to a pagan, just someone who is downright far away from God. Um, So Jesus will say, don't pray like the Gentiles, ta ethne. Um, The NIV, which does a lot of paraphrasing, says, don't pray like the pagans. 
Now, that's interpretive on their behalf, but it's correct interpretation and that that's the sense of the term Gentile here. Because for the most part, Gentiles that Jesus is speaking of in the first century were pagans. So when Paul says, for when Gentiles do not have the law, they don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have the Mosaic Law. They don't have the Torah. These not having the law are law to themselves. How so, Paul? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that even the guy who's never seen a Bible, never read the Ten Commandments, in one sense he has the Ten Commandments written into his spiritual DNA. That's why he knows the difference between right and wrong, what's just, what's unjust. Um, because he's made in the image of God. And part of being made in the image of God is to have God's law written into your heart. Now, people can suppress that law. They can deny that law. They can take their conscience, and it can become seared as with a branding iron. They can develop what the writer of the Hebrews even calls an evil conscience. An evil, you can have a callous conscience. You can have a seared conscience. You can have an evil conscience. Woe to you who exchanged light for darkness, good for evil. And that's really what Paul speaks of when he says um, in Romans 1, 28, for even though they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, a reprobate mind. Um, it's, a, it's a mind that um, the Russian Bible and Ukrainian Bible translates it, God gave them over to an upside-down mind where their logic is reversed. And so, you know, when Nancy Pelosi says it's a woman's right to kill her baby the day the baby's born, and if that mother with her doctor wants that squirming little baby who survived the abortion to to, to be dead, that's an upside-down mind. That's a reprobate mind. But understand that even the fellow with the reprobate mind It says in verse 32 of Romans 1, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do they do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They become evangelists for sin, and that's what sin does to you. If you don't find forgiveness, you become an evangelist for what God calls evil. And so very often the strongest proponents of abortion, of fornication, of homosexuality, et cetera, are people who are unforgiven. And sometimes they've participated in those very sins. And so if you can't find forgiveness and relief in your conscience, then you rationalize it and you call good evil and you call evil good. And that's where our culture is today, not just America but it's prevalent across the world. But this is what Jesus said would happen at the end of time. For the coming of the Son of Man, he likens to the days of Noah, and he likens it to the days of Lot. And those are the days that we're living in. We're living in the days of Noah, days of sexual impropriety, and the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. And, uh, I mean, who would have... I mean, 10 years ago, if you talked about a transgender person, folks would have laughed at you. Now you're laughed at for saying you think that's wrong. I mean, we have a depraved culture that we are living in. And that's why I say this could be God's wake-up call to us. Let's not miss it. And let's not miss sharing the love of God and the justice of God. 
because people can't understand grace apart from God's law. The law is God's school teacher, his schoolmaster to lead us to faith in Christ. Paul said, I would not have known about sin if the law had said, you shall not covet. Um, so when you saw the law, it acted as a double impetus, not just the law written on the heart, but the law written on tablets of stone. It revealed that there's a problem and that we need a savior. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, this woman apparently wrote this a while ago because I believe all these uh, conferences have been canceled. But she writes, Answers in Genesis is having a women's conference this spring that I'm considering attending. Kay Arthur is one of the featured speakers. I've heard mixed opinions on her. Is she biblically sound? Is she someone who's teaching I should sit under in a women's conference setting? Well, you know, I'm really surprised, and I've not researched that myself. Uh, I Ken Ham is a great guy. He has preached in my pulpit. Uh, a couple of years ago, he invited me out to the Ark, and uh, I was part of an apologetics conference with Todd Friel and a number of different guys. And uh, he's just as solid and as straight as can be. And I can't believe for one skinny minute that Ken Ham would knowingly bring a woman to his um, conference center to do what God expressly says not to do. Because I know where he stands on the gender issue, and he hasn't wavered at all. And the fact is, is that Kay Arthur has wavered. So 20 years ago, we stopped using Kay Arthur's studies at Community Bible Church because more and more she, she I think, was a leader in paving the way for women like Beth Moore. I think she's got a lot that she's going to have to deal with. But two, she wrote a book on human sexuality that was just disgusting. Um, and I just, uh, I, I thought, we're not using her anymore. She's, she's history. Um, and she would, you'd see her, you know, speaking in mixed audiences on cruises or there at Precept headquarters. And so she, she wavered. She drifted, and she contributed to the drift of a lot of... She's in her 80s now. I'm not... I don't really hear much about her anymore. Um, but, you know, uh, she's... No, I don't I don't think that uh, she should speak there. And if I have a chance to speak to Ken Ham, I'm sure I'll raise that with him. He may be just unaware of it. And he's usually on the cutting end, him and, and uh, Bodie Hodges and... Body Hodges, um, they're, they're both like really great guys. That's his son-in-law, and he's also, also spoken here at our church. And So it's inconceivable for me to know, uh, to, to believe that um, he is aware of where maybe Kay is on some of these things. But the fact is, is, you know, Answers in Genesis, I watched a thing, I Ken Ham last night, he sent me a link, and, you know, they're, they're, they're in trouble. Um, they're trusting God, but they're in trouble. They're, they're shut down. So the ark is dependent, you know, to make the money they borrowed and the payments on visitors, and you're shut down. So it's all closed. So they can't do anything right now, And but they are it, God's mercy, and they're trusting him. And um, so maybe, you know, um, what were you saying there, Rick? Okay, Arthur, yeah, she's one of the featured speakers. Well, was was because that conference is now history. But I think I will send him an email or a text message. I have his phone number and just say, hey, rethink through K. Arthur. 
she's maybe not what you think she is. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to promote the opposite of what God says. And so if you have a leader who is advocating error, gross error, and people say, well, that's a secondary or tertiary issue. It's really not. It's really not. When, when you bring a mix to the gender leadership roles in the church, you create disaster. And there is a pattern that we've seen in American Protestantism that one of the first things that uh, goes is the reversal of the roles between men and women, and it's just a slippery slope into total liberalism. Um, every mainline denomination that now advocates gay marriage and transgenderism and all these other heresies, they all started. They all started. I document this in one of the messages I did, is it okay to be gay? And I walked through the different Protestant denominations, what year they made a decision on the gender issues and then the slippery slope from there. It starts with things like this. So you don't want to waffle on this issue and say, well, you know, she, overall she's a good lady, and I'm sure she is. She has the gospel, yes. Has she helped thousands and thousands of women? Yes. But you want to finish well. You can start well, but you don't always finish well. And she's not finishing well, sadly. All right. Andy from Appleton, Wisconsin writes, I have a family member who recently left the Catholic Church in favor of the Wells Church. W-E-L-S, church. I am encouraged by this person's desire to actually read the Bible and learn what it means to believe in Jesus for salvation. I was curious what your thoughts are on the Wells Church and the recent Bible translations they developed, the Evangelical Heritage Version. Thanks for your time and ministry. Yeah, it's interesting that this is, by the way, one of the um, conservative arms of the Lutheran Church. There's a couple... Uh, that have kind of stayed the course to their truth. And that's not to say that I would agree, say, with everything that uh, the this evangelical, you know, Lutheran group, um, you know, endorses. Obviously, I don't agree with infant baptism and things like that. But do they have the gospel? Uh, do they make a distinction between... Uh, the gender roles, yes, they do. Do they allow and ordain women pastors like the ECLA? No, not at all. Um, so they're they're really good in that they're trying to be faithful to the Scripture, and they develop their – and Wells is just the Wisconsin brand of that whole uh, movement of Lutheran churches. But they did create a new translation of the Bible, the Evangelical Heritage Version, I don't own a copy, but I, and I didn't even review it in my course on bibliology, though it had just come out, just because I felt like, you know, there's technically, you know, about 250 English translations of the Bible, and I I felt like it would never really become like a major uh, translation that people are going to use, and honestly, I don't think that we really need it, Uh, and it is a version, not a translation. I said translation. It's a version, and there's technically a difference between a version and a translation, but a version is done by multiple people, and I think they had over 100 people involved when they did it. But I would liken it more to a, um, not a dynamic equivalent, but a fluid equivalent translation. 
uh, or I should say it's more of a dynamic equivalent than a formal equivalent translation. Those terms have changed in 20 years, 25 years. So a formal equivalent would be more like the NASB, uh, the ESV, the New King James, um, a dynamic equivalent rather than going word for word uh, communicates and interprets thoughts as well. So they give the essence. There's a little more paraphrasing. It's not a true paraphrase like the Living Bible initially, the Good News, CEV, and uh, other translations like that. But neither is it literal. So I, I looked at a number of verses like how did they do this verse? How did they do that verse? And here's the challenge. When you come up with a new translation of the Bible, there's a certain percentage of the words. I'd, I'd have to, I don't want to, I think it was like, uh, 23 or 24%, there's a number in there that has to be different from another translation. Otherwise, it's considered uh, plagiarism. So they have to create a different way to say the same thing. And there comes a point where you can only say it so many times unless you start paraphrasing or you're just using a thesaurus and you're using substitute words. And how much are you really accomplishing? Now, what was their motivation for doing it? I don't know. I don't know if they said, well, we just want our own Bible for our own denomination, though this denomination uses the ESV and the NASB as much as anything else. Um, But maybe they just wanted their own translation. Uh, I I don't want to accuse them of book sales. You know, that's what the NAVs did. Navigators came out with Eugene Peterson's book, Uh, The Message, which was a lousy translation, terrible, absolutely terrible, Uh, a terrible paraphrase. He he literally changed the meaning of a number of verses of Scripture, not to mention that he wrote out passages like in 1 Corinthians 6 that dealt with homosexuality, just gone, you know, and he's dead now, but they made millions of dollars off of it. And initially, you know, oh, Nav Press, you know, they've done their homework. I'm sure it's good. And I think maybe I even quoted it once or twice when it first came out. And then I actually got a copy and I said, oh, man, why did I ever quote this Bible? Because I don't want to give endorsement to it because it's, it's poorly done. But this is a good denomination for Lutherans. It's a good Bible-believing denomination. So if you've got some loved ones attending this particular denomination of Lutherans, then they're attending a church that has the gospel, and you ought to be encouraged. And if you've been to Wisconsin, I did a missions conference once in Wisconsin about a decade ago. It, it's covered over in Lutherans. There's a bunch of Lutherans. So if, uh, if you have an evangelical Lutheran church, and again, the term evangelical can be in the name of the denomination. It's anything but evangelical. But this particular group is solid. Well, another hour is gone. Where it went, I don't know. But um, if you have questions, you can email us at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. This will be rebroadcast later today for your pleasure or to share with friends. You can go to WAGP.net and you will find the link And uh, again, thanks for joining us and be safe as you walk with Christ. 